Hey folks, welcome to Pivot Point. My name is Joseph DiBiase and this is my podcast. Mm-hmm. I don't know. It's hard to tell if I was in tune. <laughs> I know I wasn't. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Hoo! Welcome back to the show, everybody. <laughs> oh my gosh. I just love that theme. All right. So I was thinking the other day of a, uh, a moment back when I was younger and we would always have coffee on the stove. And we, uh, no matter who would come to visit, coffee would be ready in an instant. And I know today we don't do that. It would be, let's go to Starbucks. And you would sit around and you would have conversation at Starbucks. But when I was a kid, what I used to call it is coffee talk. And people would show up and then lickety split, a coffee was on the stove. And before you know it, you're sitting around the table and you're chatting. My grandmother, my Nana, uh, that's Italian for grandmother. And although I do know that I've heard other Italians have another name for it, for grandmother, grandfather. When I was a kid, it was uh, Nana and Nunu. (laughs) Talk about confusing. Anyway, my grandmother, Nana, on my father's side, she would always bring anisette cookies, and I loved the Anisette cookies. And she would come. <laughs> so here's the other thing. I've got a little sidebar here. My grandmother got her license, I think, somewhere in her 60s. So when she came over to visit, she would like park a half a mile from the house for crying out loud. She just <laughs> couldn't quite know how to stop the car in time to have it park in front of our house. It would always be closer to our neighbor's house and a good three feet from the curb. Anyway, um, it's always a source of... (laughs) It's always a source of laughter for me. She would bring the Anisette cookies. Coffee would be on. And before you know it, we'd be sitting around having cookies and coffee. And that was just something I was thinking about this week. And so I'm just going to say, for today's pivot point, make yourself a cup of coffee, get yourself a biscotto, and enjoy the show. Yeah, I think I'm going to have a cup of coffee now. Where's the Anisette cookies? All right. Today's guest. Oh, wait. Quick, quick update. The update is I'll be starting again tomorrow on this adventurous project. I still don't know anything about the score. (laughs) So here we go. Buckle up. I'll let you know we're going to be finishing it up at the end of the month. So I'll let you know more next week. All right. My guest today, Ari Solitoff. So Ari, well, You're going to hear his story, but I'm going to tell you a little bit about Ari. I met Ari through Lucas Richmond, who was a guest um, on Pivot Point some weeks ago. And Lucas, when I needed a music attorney, 
I asked Lucas about it, and he turned me on to Ari. And Ari was fantastic. Like, just covered all the bases, and you knew he had your back. And when I was doing the Symphonia concerts in Florida, Ari came down. He came to watch the concerts. He came to support me. And it was amazing. And I did feel supported. So I'm just letting you all know what an amazing human being Ari is and professionally just tops, outstanding. Um, you're going to hear his journey, as I mentioned, and it's really interesting because he started out as an oboist and a good one. You're going to hear about some of the things that was offered to him and what he chose to do and why. Again, these pivot points in our lives. So this is Ari's story. And Ari, thanks again, man. It's always wonderful chatting with you. And it's an honor to have you on the show. Ari, lead us on. Hey, Joseph. Hey, man. <laughs> it's great to see you. Good to see you. How's things going in Maine? Things are going well. Yeah, we're... The sun is shining today, although it's bitterly cold, as one would expect mm. for being in the state of Maine. I think it was 11 degrees this morning. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Now, we have lots of rain going on, which is great. I don't know. It's, it's pretty warm. But, uh, yeah, 11. I don't miss those days. <laughs> That's you. You know, <laughs> New England, New England winners. Man, yeah. Well, dude, welcome to the show. Thanks for being here. Oh, I'm so excited to be here. Thank you so much for for having me and and for the invitation. I'm I've been looking forward to this. I'm so glad. That's great. So, um, I know we want to talk about some music law stuff, but I'd love to get into some of your background. Um, I know you. Uh, played woodwinds right you were clarinetist is that right i i played i played the oboe oh uh, okay yeah i i um a woodwind player um i started on the piano and then and then moved over to playing playing the oboe i see and where did you grow up where are you from i i grew up in in great neck new york uh okay. on long island uh -huh. And I I was there um, most of the way through 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 high school, and then moved to uh, Orange County, California. I used to say I, I moved from from New York City to Surf City. Yeah, <laughs> did you surf? <laughs> uh, I had one very uh, fateful experience surfing, and it just showed my New York colors that. You just don't uh, you just don't take a New York transplant and put them in the waves and expect them to get very far. <laughs> oh so. no! So was that the end of your surfing experience? <clears throat> that was it. That was it. Oh, I I got pulled into the undertow, got a Charlie horse, and mm. uh, and that was that was the end of my surfing career. And you said I'm done um, with that. But that's okay. I had plenty of other things to focus on. Yeah, so I, I grew up playing the piano. Um, I, I was a Suzuki pianist. Oh, okay. Uh, and and went went through that, and then 
and then I had I was given I was given a grand choice of what instrument to play. Um, you know, both both my parents were uh, were music teachers. Mm. They were they were public school music teachers. My my mother was a choral middle school choral teacher in the Great Neck School System mm-hmm. uh, where I grew up, and my father was a uh, a general music teacher uh, first at at John Dewey High School in in Brooklyn, uh, in New York, and then when he moved to California, he became a, a band director, literally like a marching band director. Okay. Um, at Artesia High School, mm-hmm. uh, in you know the Cerritos Artesia uh, area of of LA and and uh, and and that area. So anyway, I I was given the choice of what instrument to play. I think the choice was something like. Um, you know, uh, the oboe, the bassoon, or, uh, or the French horn. <laughs> and I, I chose the oboe, which seemed the least, the least intimidating of them. <laughs> wow, what an interesting choice. Oboe, French horn, or a bassoon. Why, did you ever ask them why those three? Well, uh, because they were music teachers, I oh, think that's they, what they, were, needed. <laughs> they They knew... <laughs> They knew what they didn't have. They oh knew gosh. what college admissions officers were looking. You know, it was it was a Faustian bargain, uh-huh. kind of the way those things work at the time. But you know what? I I I started playing the oboe, and my my first oboe teacher was a, a gentleman named Whitney Tustin. He lived in Jericho, uh, really in Hicksville, uh, out on Long Island, and we would take you know I'd drive out there with my my mom and and take, uh, oboe lessons with him. And, you know, the very beginning, I mean, you know, oboe lessons at that age, I was like, you know, nine, maybe 10 years old. I mean, you could, you could barely form an embouchure. Yeah. So it was a lot about just learning to play a woodwind instrument, learning to manipulate reeds and Mm. understand how they worked. Um, but you know what, he was, he made it fun. He made Mm. it, he he wrote you know the um, the woodwind method books for oh, like yeah. you know for bands, and so he he just found ways to make learning the oboe um, you know curious and exciting. He would have these little sayings around uh, his studio, you know the usual like you know don't be flat, don't be sharp, just be natural. Uh-huh. Uh, or, That's great. Or, <laughs> 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 um, I think he had a he had another one on the on his desk. It was a little a little sticker uh, that um, it it had the word panic on it. And whenever you would be you know in the middle of a lesson and things were just not going your way, he'd say, "Okay, you know what? Why don't you just go over and and push the panic button?" <laughs> That's great. Get it out of the way. Yeah, just just do that. You'll be good. Then we'll come back and keep going. That's fantastic. So. I love it. So he dealt not only just with the playing, but he also dealt with the mindset. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. It was as much about, uh, you know, the joy of practicing, trying to find joy in practicing. He, he would have this routine about, you know, um, he would call it double or nothing. Mm-hmm. And he would say, you know, you, if you come to your lesson and you are, and you play your lesson perfectly, right? But you have to announce at the beginning of your lesson that you're going to play your lesson perfectly. Um, you get a free lesson. 
But if you, if you make a mistake, you know, then, then you're going to have to pay double. (laughs) I love that. So how many double nothings did you do? Oh, I tried twice. And you know what happened every time is I would get into it. I'd be like, I'd be so prepared to, to do this. And, um, and, and sure enough, you know, you'd, you'd make a mistake and he'd, he'd say, Oh, Oh, that's okay. It's, we'll pretend that didn't happen. You know, you sure, you know, you sure, you sure you want to keep going. And anyway, he just, you know, he made it fun. He made it, he made it an enjoyable experience, which is as much as one can do with, you know, uh, somebody trying to play the, the oboe. Yeah. And the Suzuki method. Now I've never studied the Suzuki method, but as I understand it, it's, it's really playing by ear. Is that right? Yeah, there's it's a combination of okay. um, of learning to play, learning to play by ear, and of course learning to play, learn the notes, mm-hmm. um, and and then there's re- you know recorded audio that you use to continue mm-hmm. to learn the pieces that you're learning, and then eventually being able to really just do it from memory, so that you have a sort of a a physical innate connection to the music, and and not just you know, almost an academic one in, in reading the, the notation on the page. Uh, I like so, that. Yeah. Yeah. So I think it, it developed an early sense that, that you, you know, you could, um, you could use your fingers. I mean, like the memory of the music could be in, in many places mm-hmm. within your body. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that that, that's probably the biggest takeaway from, for me, from, mm-hmm. from that time period. Um, but yeah, I grew up, I grew up in New York. Um, I moved out to California, uh, which which I feel like is a theme on your show. There's a lot, <laughs> right? There's like a lot of people who like either went to California, left California, came back to California. Uh-huh. So, uh, and anyway, I'm one of those, and I I moved to California, and I finished high school in in Huntington Beach, and mm-hmm. then went on to uh, to college at the UC system uh, at, at UC Berkeley. And, you know, I had one of those, those, um, interesting moments and we might get into this, but I, you know, where uh, throughout my, my, my work and my professional life, I've been presented these sort of choices, you know, these Mm. like, you know, you could do this or you could do this, you know, and, and having to kind of, um, confront that and make a decision and, and the college decision, including whether or not I would, I would go to UCLA and, and pursue music as a full-time bachelor of music or go to UC Berkeley and, and get a, an undergraduate liberal arts degree became one of those, mm. those moments in time where I had to kind of figure out like, okay, you know, am I, am I going to jump into music, you know, full on and, and make that my thing or, or is there something more here? And that's been a theme throughout, throughout my life. Well, tell me more about that. So what did you decide when you went to college? What, how did that, how did that roll out? Well, I, um, you know, it's interesting. I was, I was unsure at the time, um, whether I wanted to be an oboist, Mm -hmm. uh, and I mean, who can know that, you know, at, at 17, 18, um, but I had pursued classical music pretty significantly up until that point. And, you know, there's like this natural, like you do this and then you do this and then you go to conservatory. And, and I, I kind of kept, fig, you know, struggling with, should I, you know, do I keep going down that path or, or is there something more here? 
And, uh, and so I, I had a very funny story where, um, if you live in California, uh, and you, uh, apply to the UC schools, at least at that time, it was literally like a check the box. Uh, you know, I, I, you get one application for the state and you just say, okay, I want to apply to UCLA. I want to apply to Berkeley. I want to apply to Santa Barbara, San Diego. You know, you just check the box. Mm. So anyway, I checked the boxes for UCLA and UC Berkeley. Those are the two UC schools that I was interested in. And, um, turns out I I didn't really read the fine print very carefully, um, (laughs) because (laughs) I, um, I got a letter from the, from the school of music at UCLA saying, uh, you need to come audition. And, Mm. and I must, I must've written in my application, you know, music or like, Mm. I think I might major in music. Well, if you live within, you know, 75 miles of LA and you apply to UCLA and you check the box that you're going to major in music, turns out you're actually applying to the school of music. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, this, this doesn't bode well for a future lawyer, but well, so I was um, <laughs> thinking the same thing. Like, well, lesson number one, read yeah. the fine print. <laughs> read the fine print. Anyway, I got this letter that says, you know, okay, you know, you need to come and audition and, you know, in, in February, this was, you know, February of, uh, would have been 1998. And, um, so I said, okay, well, you know, I, I, I mean, I'll audition, but I, I don't really think I'm, I'm, I'm going to go to UCLA, you know, if, uh, if it comes down to it, I, I was kind of had my sights set on, on a few other schools and I didn't know where UCLA's school of music fit in, you mm-hmm. know, with kind of the general music undergraduate community yet. But I, I said, I'll, I'll do the audition. I'll, I'll go and get ready and prepare and, and see how it goes. So anyway, I wasn't really, uh, that nervous about it. And I, I remember driving up to Westwood to the UCLA campus and, uh, it was a Saturday morning and I, I think I probably took out my oboe like two days before the audition just to kind of make sure the reads still worked. <laughs> and, um, so you were highly prepared. I was highly prepared. <laughs> I mean, to the, to the T and, um, I, I, I played a little bit, a little bit of warm up. And then I went into the room uh, at, at UCLA, and I'd been going up there because I, I was a member of, of the American Youth Symphony at the time, where mm-hmm. we used to rehearse at, uh, at the School of Music on Saturday morning. So it was kind of a familiar drive for me. Mm-hmm. Um, and I went into the audition room, and I put the music on the stand. And because I just, you know, I was not, I was, I didn't, it didn't matter. Like, sure, it was like it could go either way, you know. Well, Joseph, I, I played, I played the Strauss oboe concerto. I played that piece of music. Like I've never played a piece of music in my life. I mean, it was just, I was just having so much fun. Yeah. And it, you know, you talk, you hear about musicians who are in the flow, you know, they're in the moment. Uh, and that was one of those experiences for me. And I, I, I think I was just having a great time playing the oboe, which is so hard to do anyway, yeah, yeah. Um, by its nature. And I think that came across to the committee. Anyway, I got a call later that afternoon from, from the, the oboe teacher who was a member of the LA Philharmonic at the time. And she said, you know, we loved what you did and mm. we, we'd like to offer you a full scholarship to come here. Wow, dude. So I was like, this was the last thing I was expecting, right? Yeah. <clears throat> and uh, 
I was appreciative and I just said, thank you so much. You know, I don't, I don't know if I want to be an oboe player, you know, um, but let me, let me think about it and just kind of see how, how this plays out. And um, a couple of weeks after that, I, you know, well, a little bit after that, I, I, I got the notice back from, uh, from UC Berkeley that they were, they were going to admit me, but I didn't have to audition because there's no school of music there. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, so I, um, I ended up flying up to Berkeley Mm -hmm. and visiting the campus and, and I, I just felt like it was the place for me to be, you know, I, I, I just felt, you know, that connection to the Bay area and to the Berkeley community. And, uh, and so I thought about it and I, I went back home and I, I said to my father, you know, I think I'm going to go to Berkeley and, uh, keep in mind that both my parents, you know, being music teachers, they were like, the last thing they wanted me to do was to go to conservatory. Right. I mean, they, oh, really? they were like, you know, do anything, but. <laughs> oh, isn't that interesting? You would so, think the other way around in some ways, especially if you were offered a full scholarship, that's a big deal. Yeah. I think that they, um, I think they knew what, um, what, what, you know, how challenging life as a musician would be. Mm-hmm. And it's not that they weren't supportive of it, which of course they were. It's, I think that they were really testing, you know, where my heart was, yeah. you know, and yeah. saying, you know, are you sure, you know, are, are you sure that's what you want to do? And, and, you know, in that kind of um, mm. parental, you know, we're not going to tell you what to do, but we're going to, we're going to try to show you and hold the mirror up so that you can look inside yourself and figure out what you want to do. And that was one of those moments. So, um, anyway, I, I, I recall that story because it just, it was one of those kind of like defining moments that set set the path forward for me. And it was a musical moment, right? It was, it was all down to a Saturday in February in UCLA. Isn't that the way it is, especially when we're younger, we have these moments that are so critical that you have to make decisions that put you on a whole different direction of your life. Yeah. I mean, hypothetically, imagine if you said yes to the full scholarship and started playing oboe, who knows what your life would have unraveled as. And yet, you know, you chose another direction and it's unraveling in this way. And I find that those years, that pre-college, college, freshman time are so critical that set the direction of almost the rest of our life. I know we can change any time in our life, but it's harder to yeah. change as you get yeah. older. Yeah. Well, did, have, was there something about your time pre-college, college that, you, you know, you remember uh, uh, an experience like that? Oh, yeah, totally. I, I was um, a hockey player and a musician, and I was given scholarships to play hockey and be trumpet player. Um, and so I went to go play hockey, um, and then the coach on the freshman year quit. He recruited me. And then I say quit. I don't remember if he retired. I don't know what happened. But from that point on, I just didn't feel like I wanted to pursue hockey. And prior to that, even in high school, after I had already said yes to this guy recruiting me, my hockey coach came up like a week later and said, 
the coach from Yale called and was interested in you. Do you want, how do you want me to respond? He, the, the condition is he wants you to go to one year of prep school first. And I remember standing in the doorway because I also had my co- hockey coach was also um, a, a class I was taking in high school, which was, I think it was like film versus the book or some, some elective like that. Right. And I remember standing in the doorway and having to make that split decision right there, a split second decision right at that moment and just said, nah, I, I already made this commitment, so I'm going to stay with this commitment. And I... <laughs> You know, as an adult, you look back and you're like, what? And I remember telling my dad like a week later, and I'll never forget like the fork just falling falling out of his hand into the plate. Like, what? Like, why didn't, you know? And, uh, but that's it. You know, my dad never said, let me go back. Let's go, f- let's, let's investigate this. I didn't mm. understand the significance mm. of the decisions I was making. Right. And that's what I find happens a lot at that age. We don't really understand the significance. So yeah, when I hear your story, it's like, yep. I mean, it's it's so critical, you know? And because after that, when the coach quit, I dedicated everything into music, into trumpet playing. And then within a year after that, I then went to Berkeley. Huh. Yeah. And that's, and then I discovered film music. Right. And that, and that's the direction of my life. Right. That was the progression right there. Isn't that amazing? Yeah. yeah, it's 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 such a precious time, and it, it, you go probably can like kind of go back and be in your shoes, you know, and you can like it's almost like you can feel the feelings that, and those the tensions that you were oh, yeah. struggling with, and um, and then the path opened, you know, yeah. then then but it was unclear, like the quote, you know, the coach quit, what was going to happen. You know where are you going to go? You know, mm-hmm. is Berkeley going to be the right, a uh, good place for you? You know, yes. Yeah. You know, it's hard to look back and go, um, you know, did I make the right decision? I, I, I've, I believe we make the best decisions we can given the circumstances at that moment. Right. And right. that's all there is to that, really. I, I right. can look. What I look back at is I see that I just did not have the maturity to understand the significance of what I was choosing. That's where yeah. I wish I had more guidance, but that's it, man. That's the way it rolled, you know? Yeah. Well, and, and, and at the same time, um, you created the conditions that put yourself in that place where these things could even be an opportunity for mm-hmm. you. Mm-hmm. And uh, so think about all the, all the other things that you had decided along the way uh, to get there. And, uh, and then you begin to sort of think about that and you go, wow, you know, that's, that's pretty unique and special in and of itself. Like it Mm -hmm. doesn't need, you know, for me, my experience in that audition, it doesn't need to be more than that. You know, it, it was, uh, and, and I look back on that and say, you know, that's what a fascinating story, you know, and, and has played out kind of time and again in many ways. Um, I'm just appreciative of that. Yeah. I think that's really great that you can say that it doesn't need to be anything more than that. It reminds me of a story, um, my friend Craig McKay, who I've interviewed earlier on, and he talked about an experience in his life. And what he said about it was it was complete in and of itself. 
And I really like that idea to be able to look at these experiences and know that they don't have to be anything more than right. what they what they are. Right. Yeah. And and it you know it, it you can you can carry meaning from it and you know hope you know we'll we'll talk about this. I mean our you know our trips uh, you know to far off locations in the state of Florida. <laughs> you know they, <laughs> yeah. they are what they are. You know and you you appreciate it and uh, and then and then people's journeys kind of go on their way. Yeah. And yet the funny thing is, and I don't know if you have found this at all, but. There, I feel like there is a certain circularity of, of things, you know, things that, you know, you encounter at one point in your life come back again, you know, mm. and, and I feel like those either people or experiences uh, begin to return and, and, you know, it's fascinating that way. I, I just, you know. Can you give me an example of what, what you mean? Well, I think... Um, People that you meet 20 years ago, you know, uh, all of a sudden appear again <laughs> in, uh -huh. your, in yeah. your life because, you know, you might have met them on a project and then you somehow you're still in music or you're still in entertainment and all of a sudden your paths cross again. Yeah. And so, uh, and I feel like that has happened to me, especially in music. I mean, I, I feel like that, um, you know, the, 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 community of music as you know is itself a community and we find our you know we find ways to um because music encourages collaboration mm -hmm. uh i think it it means that we are able to work with people you know in places and spaces that we wouldn't have expected um, um i agree i can see that that's definitely happened uh in the film business you know you work with somebody and then years later you work with them again, right? You know, many projects later, and right. um, yeah, for for reasons of unknown reasons, <laughs> why it didn't continue and why it's coming back. I thought you were going to say something about uh, life's lessons that kind of return back and give you opportunity to uh, have another go at it. Um, so tell me, so you went to you went to college, and you you got a liberal arts degree. So tell me the gap by filling the gap between being an oboist liberal arts degree and becoming a music attorney. Mm. Well, how did that progression happen for you? Wow. Uh, a lot. <laughs> <laughs> Seems like a lot of steps, but, um, you know, it, it, it was, it was full of both, uncertainty and lessons. Mm -hmm. Uh, and I, you know, my first, when I did get to, uh, the Bay area, uh, I, I ended up taking oboe lessons with a, um, a wonderful oboist. Uh, his name was Bill Banovitz. He was the principal oboe of the, of the San Francisco ballet, uh, orchestra, and he would teach privately. And, um, he, you know what, he, he had such a profound influence on my life. Um, he, he, he was such a um, beautiful musician and human being, and he found pleasure in, you know, in the little things. I mean, I know that's so cliche, but um, you could just see how he was fulfilled by his experience of playing 
passages of Nutcracker, even though he had played it, you know, hundreds of times before. Um, mm-hmm. And every time, you know, or, or Swan Lake or, you know, Romeo and Ju- I mean, just like, you know, these musical experiences that seem mundane and yet he found ways to, to bring joy and light into them. And so for me going to Oakland, I would take the bus down from Berkeley and then walk up uh, the hill. Um, he lived near the, the, I think it's the Mormon temple up uh, in the, the, the Oakland Hills. And, um, <clears throat> you know, it was just, it was a way of, uh, of, of stepping outside of the academic and into a bit more of a spiritual experience Mm -hmm. and um you know bill ended up bill ended up passing away unfortunately in my junior year of college Mm -hmm. um from uh you know complications with um with the aids virus and hiv um and you know i i i'm again i'm just so appreciative of um you know his time in my life Mm -hmm. um so how does one end up going from Berkeley to being a music lawyer? Uh, well, you know, you, you, I discovered and have long found that music has been an important kind of the central theme and, and value of my life. Um, mm-hmm. And whenever I've wandered too far away from that, <laughs> I have, you know, ended up coming back. Yeah. And um, so I went through, uh, undergrad, not knowing what I would do, uh, mm. I, knowing that I wasn't going to be a professional oboe player, but still playing and enjoying it. I started working as a um, and in, as an intern um, in the communications department of the San Francisco Symphony, and that was my first, um, you know, foray into okay. Well, you're not going to be a musician, but there's there are these other parts of the music business that mm-hmm. you can be a participant in, mm-hmm. and that you can be um, you can make a difference in. Mm-hmm. And so I I um, would go to Davies Symphony Hall, you know, several times a week, and um, work in the PR department, and go to concerts at the symphony and. I, it was, it was amazing. You know, it was very fulfilling for me. I feel like I spent more time <laughs> in Davies Symphony Hall than I did in my classes at Berkeley, but yeah. you know, um, it, it was a lot of fun and it opened up a new path for me that there was this world called, called orchestra management out there where y- you could be involved in classical music, but from, you know, behind the stage as opposed to on the stage. Mm-hmm. So when you were there and you listened to the orchestra play, did you not feel like you wanted to play? Well, I was playing in the San Francisco Symphony Youth Orchestra at the time. Um, We we actually rehearsed on stage at Davies Symphony Hall. Mm -hmm. So I felt like I was having a very challenging and fulfilling musical experience. And for me, going to concerts of the San Francisco Symphony was... Uh, was the reward, you know, Mm. that was just like the, uh, just this incredible gift that, you know, again, kind of because of life and being a musician, I I could go hear this incredible orchestra on a weekly basis. I mean, that that's unbelievable. Um, So I didn't feel envy or jealous or, or, um, 
or even um, remorseful that I wasn't mm-hmm. pursuing music as an oboist. Um, it, if anything, it, I felt very appreciative. And so it, it just actually deepened the connection for me mm-hmm. as to why I was doing what I was doing, which was mm-hmm. to make it possible for this you know, these musicians to do what they do best, you yeah, know, and, yeah. and even though I was a tiny little speck of a part <laughs> in, yeah. of making that happen, it felt fulfilling for me. Sure. And, I can understand that. Yeah. Uh, you know, that, that is a, you know, that became and has been a theme for me throughout my, my life and work has been about, it's been more about creating the, the circumstances for musicians to do their best work. And for me to, to be a part of that is enough. Mm-hmm. Um, because then when I hear it, when I see the end product, you know, it, it comes full circle, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. So, um, and I know, I know what's gone into it. I know how hard the musicians and the conductor, I mean, everybody has worked to get to that point, to be able to perform at that level, to be able to, yeah. you know, um, make and, and produce a musical experience like that on such a consistent basis. So, um, so from there, I, I went into orchestra management. I went, I, there was a program called the orchestra management fellowship program. It was a program operated by the league of American orchestras, which is the national service organization for, you know, all, um, 1200 or so symphony orchestras in the country, most of which are, you know, under $250,000 in size, um, and youth orchestras and amateur orchestras, you know, um, plus all the one, you know, the traditional ones that we think of, they kind of organize and advocate for them and they operated a training program. So I, I went into that training program. I was, I was one of a handful of participants that year. Uh, I, I went out to the Aspen music festival and was one of the orchestra managers in Aspen. Um, and again, you know, we were sort of referring to this earlier, you know, I, I met, musicians and conductors and artists in Aspen who I would later meet, you know, again. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and so Aspen, you know, was a, was, it's like this magnet for, for, for talent. And, um, and uh, <clears throat> so I, I was in Aspen that I, I went to the Pacific Symphony, uh, worked there for a number of months, then traveled to Dayton, Ohio, worked at the Dayton Philharmonic and then the Pittsburgh Symphony. So I finished the year. So it was a year long program. You traveled, rotated to these different orchestras in these different cities and you're living there and you're working in, you know, in, in each organization and kind of getting a feel. It was the first time I'd really had a chance to travel around the country much mm-hmm. at all. Mm-hmm. So it was kind of my, um, my, my years, you know, people take a year to travel. Right. <laughs> that was my year. <laughs> And, uh, and every experience was different, you know, working at Pacific, um, getting to know, you know, a lot of the studio musicians who were, they'd be up performing in the studio at night and they'd, they'd then come down on the weekends and perform with Pacific Symphony. Um, and, uh, and then Dayton, you know, getting to know the, the, the kind of um, freelance musician pool of um, Southwestern Ohio uh, and then meeting the musicians of the Pittsburgh Symphony and and um, working through that and you know what an amazing band that mm. is. I mean they 
I, I think that if there's the closest thing to a European orchestra in the United States is the Pittsburgh Symphony, in my opinion. And wow. they just nice. they perform like like a finely tuned, you know, automobile. I mean, it's just unbelievable mm. to hear them play. <clears throat> so um, so I had a great experience in Pittsburgh and, um, and then I got this phone call from, uh, an orchestra in Florida, got a call from the board president, um, of the Pensacola symphony. And he says, I hear you're, you're in this training program for future executive directors. And we'd be, we were curious if you'd be interested in interviewing for our executive director job. And I said, well, where's the orchestra? And he said, Pensacola. I said, hold on. <laughs> and I pulled out my computer. <laughs> right. And said, where's Pensacola again? Uh-huh. <clears throat> so I, um, I ended up flying down to Pensacola and um, I interviewed for the job. And the music director there, who's still there, is a wonderful conductor. His name's Peter Rubart. Um, again, people and places kind of coming back. He had, he had grown up in Berkeley and he had gone to UC Berkeley. So we had this kind of immediate mm. connection. Um, and I thought, you know, I'm young and, and this would be interesting. And so let's just see what happens. And so I, I took the job and moved to Pensacola, Florida and, um, and, and got to work. And so, um, you know, that was the beginning of about 10 years working in orchestra management Um, I, I should share, actually, it was in Pittsburgh, uh, where I met Lucas, uh, Richmond, um, who Mm -hmm. was a prior guest on, on your show and who actually introduced us. Yes. Right. So if I had not been in Pittsburgh, I, we may not be sitting here today. Wow. I know. Right. I love the connections. It's amazing. Yeah. So I, um, I moved to Pensacola, worked there. Uh, for a number of years, and then took a job um, working at the Louisville Orchestra, moved to Louisville, Kentucky, uh, worked there for a year in some some very challenging co- conditions for the orchestra financially. Uh, that was my one of my first experiences, work, you know, working through uh, an orchestra in financial distress. Mm. Uh, and then um, a job opened up in in Portland, Maine, uh, and I interviewed and, uh, and was fortunate to be offered the position as executive director and, um, ended up coming, moving up to Portland. And, you know, I had no idea that it would be the place that I would end up settling, right. you know, yeah. as a, as a family. Um, but we, you know, I moved up here. I'd gotten married at the time, uh, to somebody who I, my wife, Natalie, who I, I met in Pensacola. So I, you know, we met, we met down there. We moved here and I, I got to work and uh, we ended up, we were in a music director search and uh, we ended up offering the job to a conductor who had actually been a candidate for the youth orchestra that I was in when I was in San Francisco. So I knew Robert <laughs> from Isn't his audition. Yeah. And, uh, and he came and auditioned here and we were, we were a great fit. Um, as two people working together to advance the orchestra and did some, I think, meaningful work here Mm -hmm. in the community. Um, Another, you know, worked hard to to, um, get the financial ship in order. Mm -hmm. And uh, and then I I got a call from um, Philadelphia to go go work at the Philadelphia Orchestra. And 
was at a point in time where I felt like, okay, you know, I'm ready to kind of take on a new challenge and to, to see where this goes. And, um, so we moved to Philadelphia and, and then, you know, right upon getting there, it became clear that Philadelphia itself was also in some pretty significant financial distress. And a lot of this was still, you know, kind of fallout from the 2008, 2000, mm. you know, uh, great recession. Is and that so because just, donations were just low? Well, I think it, um, maybe over time donations were low. Yeah. Mm. I think, um, the, you know, we, we can get into a whole discussion on this topic, but you know, the, every orchestra is in, in its own unique place in time and, 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 um, within its community. And so, um, at that particular moment in time, um, you know, Philadelphia had a, a fair number of, of challenges on sort of each, each area where it did business, mm-hmm. you know, in, in its programming and its, you know, um, in its relationship with its venue, in its, you know, financial stability and, and funding model and uh, whether it had enough endowment or not. I mean, so all of those things really kind of came to a head um, at, at that time. And as a result, we, we ended up, the board and the organization ended up uh, making the decision to file for bankruptcy. And so mm. uh, I was there and we, we, we worked hard to stay out of bankruptcy. And then once the decision was made, we worked hard to get through the process and to come out the other side mm. in, intact. And mm-hmm. it was a chapter 11 bankruptcy. So it was not a, a liquidation. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think the, one of the most proud features of that whole process was that the orchestra never stopped playing. The, throughout, throughout the entire time. That's um, remarkable. That's you know, great. The, yeah. the, the musicians, the music continued on. And I think that, that to me was the kind of the, the hallmark of that process. So, mm-hmm. but you know what, in that process, Joseph, I worked with a lot of lawyers. <laughs> yeah, I bet. Um, I, I felt like I spent more time working with lawyers than I did working with our musicians. Um, although I had, had uh, a number of experiences working with the law and the legal profession prior to going to Philadelphia, um, that was probably the first time where I thought, you know, okay, like there's, there's an entire body of knowledge here uh, that I don't understand. Mm. And, and in order for me to continue to grow as a leader and as a professional, I think I need to go to law school. Mm. So, after that experience, I, I needed a break. <laughs> sure. Yeah. And I, in some ways, law school was a break. It, it was an t- opportunity for me, which I know kind of sounds a little, a little nutty. Yeah. I needed that time to kind of take a step back. Yeah. Um, and in some ways, you know, even though law school was, was rigorous, um, it, it gave me some time to kind of, you know, step out, do some reflection, really think about what's going on and what motivates me, um, live through a lot of uncertainty because, mm-hmm. uh, I ended up choosing to go to law school. We moved back to Maine. I went to the university of Maine school of law, which is by no means the Mecca of music law or entertainment law. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, um, 
I had to kind of work through that. Um, I came out of law school not knowing really what would come next, Mm. and which is a very strange place to be because a lot of people think, oh, you you know, you go to law school and, and you you're going to be a lawyer. Right. And, and even that was a question for me. Um, so at the time it was really, well, you know, I, I, we're not ready to leave Maine mm-hmm. and, um, let me give this law practice thing a go and mm-hmm. see, see where it leads. Um, so no more orchestra management. It was more about music law. No, it wasn't that clear. Okay. All right. Well, how was it? Give, give, give me the blanket idea. It just was, well, all right, I've graduated. Did you look for law firms? Did you like hang a shingle? How did it work? Well, I had a, a position at a law firm coming out of law school. I, I had gone through all the norm, you know, sort of traditional become a summer associate and, mm-hmm. you know, get an offer. Uh, and I, I ended up joining a very reputable, excellent law firm here in Maine. It's one of the largest firms in, you know, outside of Boston. Um, so, you know, I, I definitely went down that path. What mm-hmm. I didn't know was uh, how I would, how I would, um, what kind of law I would practice. Mm-hmm. Um, and you would think it would have been obvious to me, but it, it wasn't. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't, I didn't know music law existed. Um, mm-hmm. Again, you know, it, it wasn't clear to me um, because in all my time working in classical music, I, I didn't really interact with any music lawyers. I, right. We interacted with labor lawyers and we interacted with, you know, um, maybe a, a nonprofit lawyer, but we rarely, if ever, interacted with a music lawyer. And I so, think that there's something, there's a whole other tangent on that. <laughs> well, I just assumed, I guess, that when you decide to go to law school, it was for music law and that was your focus. But what you're saying, it was not, it was a, it was, I don't know, understand uh, how law is broken out, but did you do just like a general law degree? Yeah, I think um, I, I get this question a lot now, um, particularly from law students who or people who are thinking about law school. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, whether it was my error or just not being kind of doing my full due diligence. I mean, I went to, you know, I went to law school thinking like you get a law degree, right? It was it was more of like a general degree. And then and then you go and practice. And and you're right it, there there are so many different areas of the law that one can practice in. Mm-hmm. And there are definitely law schools that have more of an emphasis on mm-hmm. one particular uh, area of law versus another. But because I didn't go to law school thinking necessarily, you know, I'm going to be a lawyer or I'm going to be a music lawyer, those things didn't really filter to me. I, I think I, you know, at that time, I was still envisioning that I would go to law school and go back into orchestra management. I see. With the knowledge of being of law and being a lawyer. I exactly. See. Yeah. Okay. So it, I hadn't quite connected the dots and sort of separated out, you know, okay, you're no longer going to be doing orchestra management. There's something else that you need to fill this with. Yeah. And, uh, and so then I, you know, I came out of law school and, um, 
and started joining a law firm. And then, you know, that question emerged. Can mm. you can you put these things together? And mm. I started to look around and and sure enough, um, I I got involved with the American Bar Association's uh, uh, forum on entertainment and sports law. And I remember going out to Las Vegas uh, for the, the first time that I went to one of their conferences and it, it was, you know, 250 people, you know, most all lawyers. And I went into my first session with a group of music lawyers and they started talking and it was like a light bulb went off. Sure. My, uh-huh. my head, I was like, oh my goodness, like this is, this is it, right? And here, here they are, here, here are the people, here's, you know, here's the, here's the, the, the tribe that I, I think I can fit within if I, you know, work at it. Um, and, uh, and sure enough, you know, that's, that's how it has transpired. So once I opened my eyes to that possibility, then I started to look around and say, okay, well, where, where can I do that work? How can Mm -hmm. I practice you know, what it means to be a music lawyer. And I started out with, a, you know, just pro bono clients who, mm-hmm. you know, composers or, or um, artists who just needed assistance working through their contracts. And eventually that led to some paying music clients and eventually to some bigger music clients. And uh, next thing you know, I, I had a kind of full portfolio of, of work, you know, working on copyright and music law and uh and that was the progression Mm. and so it was by no means a straight line (laughs) no it never is is it it's hardly i should say i shouldn't say never because i know some people just it just kind of falls into this and this and this and there they are um so i know you wanted to discuss a little bit about some of the copyright law the new things that are happening um so you know i know this has been a good uh look back as to how you went from being a musician through your education, becoming a music attorney, which I personally am grateful for because you've handled my material and you've come to my concerts and it's been fantastic. Um, So what's happening that you'd like to discuss uh, as well with um, music law and copyright? Wow. Well, we can talk about <laughs> we can talk about that um, it, you know uh, in a number of different ways. I think that um, I think that if anything, what's fascinating right now is that this is a really interesting time to be thinking about copyright and music for a variety of different reasons. Um, one, I mean, the obvious of just the, the kind of advent of, of streaming music mm-hmm. and how it has changed, you know, just in the last five years to becoming the predominant form of music consumption. Um, along with that uh, has come the launch of the new Mechanical Licensing Collective, which just launched at the beginning of January, which is a new nonprofit organization that was specifically created out of the Music Modernization Act to mm-hmm. assist, you know, composers and publishers um, with collecting their their digital streaming mechanical royalties. Um, 
this is huge (laughs) in, in the world of music and, uh, and the ability for the digital service providers, you know, um, Spotify's and Apple music and Amazon music to finally kind of be able to connect up, uh, all of the royalties, mechanical information, you know, for the streaming of, of audio, um, of audio mechanicals. Mm -hmm. So, um, that is brand new, and you know I think that the the interesting work ahead will be working with individual composers like you mm-hmm. to say, okay, <clears throat> what do you need to do to get ready to create an account with the MLC? Um, how do we look at all of your musical copyrights, everything that you've written? And begin to make some sense of it. Mm. Um, and I, I and for me, that's you know I think we can talk about it in the abstract, or we can talk about it in very practical terms. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you've written you've written Sinfonia. You know, mm-hmm. you've written music for Alpha. You've mm-hmm. written you know music for the Ameri- you know, American Sniper. You've written the American Sniper Suite. Mm-hmm. Y- you know, you have your own compositions that you have written and had recorded they represent um, they represent your output as a composer. How do we connect the dots between what you have written, you know, your, your BMI mm-hmm. <laughs> registrations and your yeah. performance royalties, um, your royalties that you receive from your music being featured in film, um, your royalties from music being featured in, in streaming services, and and have it all make some sense to you? Um, yeah, that's a and, great question. <laughs> and maybe we'll talk after the show, <laughs> because um, yeah, it, it you know I I see uh, you know you see people you get your statements from Spotify or YouTube or whatever, and they're just hundreds of plays, and you may get ten dollars. Right. And it just is like, what? You know, back in the day, if this was like a record, you'd be getting a gold record on the wall. You know what I mean? Or, or a platinum or something. I mean, just, you know, there's so many plays that are happening, but you're not seeing any, any uh, financial uh, compensation for it. So what you're saying now is that there is something new in place that's going to help connect those dots. At least from the mechanical license, from an audio mechanical licensing perspective, right? It's just one piece of the puzzle. And if you, I mean, as a composer, if you just think about your world as three big buckets, mm-hmm. you know, you've got your performance royalties from BMI, mm-hmm. from, you know, uses of your music on the radio and and small portion from streaming and, uh, you know, any kind of TV use or things like that, Um You've got your mechanical bucket, which has been decreasing over time because there's fewer and fewer, fewer physical products being produced. But now mm-hmm. you have this streaming capacity and all that flows through uh, mechanical royalties and then synchronizations, right? So, right. you know, uses of your music and in film and, and TV advertisements. And so at the end of the day, that's kind of the, you know, I mean, you're not generating rentals of your music, um, right, right? And uh, but you know, those are the three, the three big ones. And then there's, you know, the new platforms, right? Sort of how is music being used in in video games and and these kind of alternative methods 
But at the end of the day, that's kind of what it comes down to. So how do we connect the dots so that you know, okay, this is where I'm getting from, you know, from performance royalties, this is what I'm getting from mm. mechanicals, this is what I'm getting from sinks. And that really represents, you know, kind of my musical royalty output, you know, what yeah. I should expect to receive, at least for the time being. But I think in a broader sense, you know, it's, it's a, um, I think, you know, there's been reference to the fact that music and music publishing is kind of a, a game of pennies. And so, you know, the question is, how do those pennies begin to add up over time? And for me, that's what's fascinating about copyright and music yeah. right now is how do you, how do you do things now that are going to position you for, you know, success over, over time? Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and there's obviously so much happening there's, you know, streaming services, there's all these new, new technologies, you know, that are using music. And then, you know, for, for composers and songwriters that have established catalogs, um, you know, there is this incredible market that has developed to acquire these catalogs and to, you know, continue to put them to use. And Mm. so, um, all of those things are happening all at the same time right now. Yeah. Um, I think I heard a statistic or I read a statistic, at least this was pre-pandemic, that uh, I think it was a Goldman Sachs report that um, the music industry is it was expected to um, triple between now and, um, and 2030. Um, and so it, it's, it's projected to be a growth industry. Right? That's amazing. So, That's um, great news. At least globally, right? So what does that mean exactly? Yeah. Um, and, and how do you position yourself to be part of that? Right. And, and, and more importantly, I think what, what's meaningful for you, right? Like yeah. what, where are you doing work or where is any composer doing work that represents their voice mm-hmm. and that is within their um, network of connections um, so that it feels both authentic and meaningful to you at the same time. So mm. Um, copyright is the underpinning for all of that. Mm. Um, and I think that the challenge is to be creative in spite of the fact that streaming services pay so little, um, it, it's kind of the same, you know, where, where can you apply effort and energy into the things that, you know, make sense for you mm-hmm. and begin to see some tangible results. I was reading recently about a, um, a musician who, you know, all she did was focus on, on having her music placed in synchronizations. You know, that's, that's what she writes for. It's what she's been developing a network for, you know, and, and she's been doing it for long enough that now she's developed relationships with music supervisors and, and others to where they now go to her and Mm -hmm. say, you know, what have you got? Um, So it's just sort of, you know, picking something and, and kind of sticking with it over time and, and seeing mm-hmm. where it goes. Well, Ari, thank you so much for coming on the show. I it, This has been wonderful. I don't know if we hit everything, but I know that we can always come back and do it again. It would be a lot of fun. I'm really grateful to you. It's such a pleasure to, to, to spend the time with you and uh, great job on everything that you're doing with, with the show and beyond. Thank it's, you. it's really meaningful. Thank you, man. I appreciate it. All right. We'll talk soon. Great. Good to see you. You too. Bye-bye. Well, there you go. Can you imagine came out of law school and didn't know exactly what was next? 
and I just love the adventurous spirit. Let me give it a try and see where things go, see where things lead. I love that. And then the other thing I wanted to say was about his teacher, his oboe professor, who brought joy and light into the mundane. There's something to, to hang on to, huh? Let's bring joy and light into the mundane. That's amazing. Well, listen, next week, we're going to have music editor, composer Shy Rozo on the show. I didn't know much about Shy. I just saw him around on social media. During this time of COVID, he's been highlighting musicians and giving them shout outs. These musicians who have been out of work. And I thought to myself, well, this is somebody I want to get to know. So next week, Shy Rozo will be on the show. Until then, get yourself some coffee, have a biscotto, have a biscotti. And remember, if he's doing it, why not you?